This is episode 83 of the Alternative Health Tools podcast. I'm Claire Nicolau and I'm here today with my co-host Lisa Victoria. We're also joined by John Beethan, co-founder and producer of the podcast, and we have a special guest speaker today, Mike Collins, founder of sugaraddiction.com, who's going to talk to us today about whether sugar really is addictive. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Fantastic to have you here um, with us today, Mike. And we're really curious to hear all about how you founded sugaraddiction.com. What's your story behind how you got to where you are now and how you help people? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, again, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's an honor. The, uh, the short version, I call it the podcast version, is... Uh, you know, I grew up a regular kid. I think <laughs> everybody uh, ate a lot of sugar. My mother was a sugar junkie, uh, my favorite sugar junkie, and she kind of thought sugar was love in the family. I mean, we were doing cookie dough before cookie dough was cool, and we bonded over oatmeal chocolate chip cookies on Saturdays. And you know, she just she always had a stash somewhere, uh, and we always knew where it was. We grew up with uh, butter and sugar sandwiches, and. Hmm. Too much uh, Kool-Aid, which which had three cups of sugar instead of one. Uh, we couldn't afford soda, so we made our own. And and regular cereal, and you put uh, the sugar on it, on the, on the uh, cereal, and there's probably a half an inch or a quarter inch that you'd scrape up on the bottom. Uh, so we, sugar was not looked at the way it is today. It's, it was a different thing. There's a great uh, YouTube video with Eric Clapton, the famous guitar player. And he's talking with Ed Bradley from 60 Minutes in there at his $7 million Antigua treatment center about uh, Eric's addiction stuff. And uh, he says, Did, Ed says, this started with uh, heroin, right, uh, Eric? And he says, no, it started with sugar. And he talks about those bread and butter uh, and sugar sandwiches. And he said it used to change his state, right? And so I went through my early days unconsciously, like most of the people in the world, using sugar to change my state to if I felt bad or sad, I would go for sugar and it was free and around the house and there was always a way that I could get it in my body. And uh, and then candy and cookies and sodas and ice cream was just an addition. But come around 12 or 13 or 14 years old, I discovered beer and beer really got me changed my state completely. I could talk to girls. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, you know, that anxiety went away. I was uh, not as socially awkward, that kind of thing. And that rock and roll party lasted till I was about 28. And we can go back with that. Um, I'm a recovering guy. I got in recovery from alcohol and drugs about 28, but I'll stick with the sugar. But I'll, I'm an open book, so I'll answer any questions you have about that part. And, uh, in essence, what I think happened at 28 is what happens to a lot of recovering people is I basically went back to sugar. I substituted the sugar, large amounts of it. We're talking 16-ounce Mountain Dews, eight or six or eight a day, candy, and I quickly gained 20 pounds, had zits all over my face, dark circles under my eyes. And, uh, you know, a lot of my fellows in the recovery group did that. So I read a book called Sugar Blues in that time period. And uh, Sugar Blues was written by a guy named William Duffy. And that, 
that book was uh, written in 76, got a lot of publicity and stuff. And I read it in the early 80s. And basically, uh, it's a great story. He was at a party one time and he heard this voice from behind him and it said, I wouldn't have that. He was putting two lumps of sugar in his coffee. I wouldn't have that stuff in my house, let alone my body. And so the voice he knew, it was Gloria Swanson, the famous movie star. Right? So he ends up marrying Gloria Swanson, and they toured with that book and publicized it quite a bit in the 80s, but it just kind of dissipated after that. But I talked my wife at the time into having children with no sugar, no flour, no caffeine in, during the pregnancy, and it lasted till they were about six years old. And then for most of their childhood, they only had it at outside birthdays, never at the house. And so about I had a went on to have a regular kind of business career. I'm mostly online in the last 20 years selling information and um, software and stuff. And I purchased the domain about 10 years ago, sugaraddiction.com. And I started to put out information about it, really good information, the best information of the day. And a few people would find it and they would get uh, office sugar and stuff. But it wasn't until a couple of years back that I started coaching and building communities, uh, online communities, where people could get together and form a tribe, which I believe now is the answer to getting off sugar. So that's the short version. That's the podcast version. I can answer any detailed questions about that, but... I don't know where the God put the thing in my head that this is what I needed to be getting information out about in the world, but that's, uh, that's what, that's what I'm doing. That's where I am. That's fantastic. And thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. And so much of what you said, I can really resonate with. So I remember having my rice uh, krispies when I was a child and I put sugar on them. And exactly like you said, I was scraping the sugar out the bowl. And we used to have that sugar bowl on the table when I was growing up and it was so accessible. And every Sunday, my grandparents would cook a cake and we'd have a cake retreat after Sunday lunch. And it was seen as a treat. So everything you said is, you know, it really resonates with me. So thank you for sharing. And yeah, we'll ask lots of questions and, and yeah, get some more knowledge out of you for our listeners today. Bring them on. I've, I've had most every question, so go for it. Wow. I love what you said um, right at the beginning about sugar is love. And I think that's where pro probably one of the problems starts, isn't it? Because we associate sugar from such a young age with having a treat. Yep. You know, it's a treat for being a good child. It's a treat at the end of the meal. It's never a piece of cheese or something like that, is it? It's always yeah. a, a sugary exactly. treat. So it's not surprising that children identify with that as a very early age as being something they want more of. Sure. Yeah, it's. I think that you're hitting the nail on the head in the unwinding of this. In the last five years, the science has pretty much proven uh, that this is not going to be a good thing for people to eat a lot of, and definitely probably not for children. Just recently, I don't know if you know this, but the American Pediatric Dental Association, the American Pedi Association of Pediatric Physicians, the American Heart Association, I can never remember the last one, Coupled with the Robert Wood Johnson Association, which is probably the largest nonprofit or one of the largest nonprofits in the United States. And they issued the first time ever that all of these folks got together and recommended zero, I mean, zero sugar for children between the ages of uh, birth and five years old, of sugary drinks, I should say. So this is finally coming out and coming to the fore. And I mean, 
it's just so enculturated, literally exactly what you said. Uh, for 300 years, since the days of the slave trade in England, they would go to Africa with the empty boats. They would pick up the slaves. They'd go to America or the Caribbean island, pick up the sugar and the rum and everything, molasses, maybe stop in America, and then go back to England and built a huge empire on the backs of sugar. And for 300 years, our society never, it, it, our society has just been drenched in this sweet stuff. And the, the fact that it is sweet is such a deceiving thing uh, that it, it really now we are finding that most of the quote unquote aging diseases really are just some may possibly be an effect of a, an overdose of sugar most of your life. So it's, it's a really tough deal to unwind when you couple it with the love that people say, you know, when people bake for you and they... And they give you gifts of chocolate or candy, right? It's really hard uh, for that societal unwinding. So, yeah, that's where we're at. And that's really interesting what you say about children and not having sugar at a young age between the age of zero and five. Mm -hmm. And I know you said you raised your children on no sugar. What experience have you had with working with other children and how? what feedback have you had from parents and children alike in terms of not having access to that sugar? Yeah, it's a great question. And we have to break it up into two, two camps. One of the camps is uh, they've never had it. And they try this in the early days, either, either during the pregnancy or right after. I, I would recommend during the pregnancy because it passes right through the blood brain barrier and the, the placental barrier. You know, they, they get the sugar regardless. And you're playing with the dopamine. You're paying literally, in my view, development of the brain. And uh, I use my own children as a guinea pig, basically. And the, and the experiment worked. I'll, we'll talk about that later if you want. But basically, uh, that camp, like if a woman finds out that she's pregnant, she will quit drinking alcohol immediately. Quit smoking cigarettes immediately. Very difficult things to quit, especially cigarettes. And they will quit immediately, right? And I think we need to get the science out there for more folks so that that happens when the pregnancy starts. And now American Pediatric Dental, American uh, Pediatrics and American Heart say the exact same things. So I think that has to happen. And we have complete control between ages, birth or the, you know, the, in the womb until they're four or five years old, we control their food. So that's, I think, an easier task. The harder task comes when what 90 probably plus 5% of children now, they've already been exposed, right? They've already had the sugar. They've already had sugar used as a, here, have sugar and go be quiet for a minute. Go watch the television for a minute. They've used it as a behavioral management tool. Uh, they've used it as, you said, as a treat, as a reward, as a, you know, just it's it's convoluted, if you will. And so when you take it away, they all of a sudden, if you're not putting your own oxygen mask on first, if these children are under 10 years old, they will pay attention to what you're doing and not what you're saying. They will ride with you. But if they get to be 9 or 10 or 11 years old and you're still using sugar and you try and take it away from them, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. So you have to break it up into different camps as to where you are with your age of your children. Yeah, I think that's a really amazing point that you've just made there. You know, kids do as you do rather than do as you say, don't they? And they yeah. observe a lot of our learning is through observation. So if 
the parents are eating sugar and then you're telling the children not to eat sugar, what are they going to do? <laughs> They're going to learn by observation. My, my father told me never to drink. That, that not something he did regularly. Didn't, <laughs> that didn't stop him from drinking. <laughs> so, so, Mike, talk to us a little bit about why addiction to sugar is so bad. Yeah, uh, I don't think the podcast long enough, but anyway. Um, give us the podcast version. <laughs> okay, I'll give you the podcast. That's a great, great, great way. Uh, so the recent research, in my opinion, I'm going to skew this a little different than people think, okay? The recent research in the last five years really started with a guy named Robert Lustig. And you guys can look him up. He's very famous nowadays. Mm. And uh, I've, read, I've read his book, um, Fat okay. Chance. Brilliant yeah. book. Brilliant, Brilliant book. Right? And uh, – and it started with a YouTube video uh, called uh, Sugar, the Bitter Truth. And it would just literally, it's a night boring kind of, but he's a charismatic guy. So kind of a boring 90-minute uh, college lecture on fructose, right? And fructose is an interesting compound, right? It's, there's nothing in nature that's uh, poisonous that contains fructose, right? And there is also only one way that there's also nothing in the human body that requires fructose, right? And it, it can only be processed in the liver. So now you take the fructose and you process it, right? In other words, it's not in fruit. And I'll get into fruit later if you want, but it, that's an amazing story But with the fructose and fruit. But when you process it down to a white powder, a crystalline powder, now you have a drug. Okay, and that drug affects. I mean, fructose in fruit is almost identical to fructose powder. So, we'll, but I'm going to separate it for a second. So, the fructose affects the reward systems in the brain. Okay, now everybody's always been and should be and continues should be. Table sugar is half fructose and half glucose. And when you raise the glucose level, what happens is. You know, you get high blood sugar and diabetes and all these other kind of things, and, and it ravages your body, right? But the reason people can't quit and the reason they continue and that diets are 90% recidivism, right, meaning they, if they lose weight by cutting back on the white stuff, they actually gain it all back and then some, is because this is a substance use disorder. This is actually something like, like uh, Eric Clapton was talking about, that it is affecting the brain reward system, the dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, oxytocin, it really does play with these centers of the brain. And when you're starting this as a small child, I mean, we all see what happens when cake and ice cream comes out at a birthday party. It seems like the children turned into different people. They just go crazy because they're all hopped up on the, the brain reward chemicals that are affecting them in massive doses. And so if we do this in our entire lives, right, we, we, we just pound the hell out of our dopamine, serotonin, all of the reward chemicals, and we use sugar as a, a way to manipulate our emotions, to manipulate our feelings, to change our state unconsciously, and it's pretty much close to free and ubiquitous. So we don't think of it consciously. It's just like I said it, in the enculturation evolved for 300 years into the society that it's just kind of a, this is how we are, who we are. Right. But when you do cleave apart, when you do separate the two and you get quote unquote clean or, or, or get away from it, you start to realize that it does this to you. And that's why you can't quit. The health stuffs are well documented with the glucose in the body, 
What is now coming to the fore, as I mentioned, is the fructose effect on the brain chemicals. And that's where the problem is in quitting or staying off sugar. Podcast version. (laughs) (laughs) So just in terms of then health problems, what are the main the main issues, I mean, there's, you know, there's, you know, diabetes and, you know, the, there's the well-documented health problems, but what are, you know, what is going to happen to you if you eat too much sugar for too long? Well, I mean, I think the one that people, uh, we talked about as we came in is, uh, you know, people want to know, do I have to do this for the rest of my life? The, the way people come in to see me or come in, in, in this, in any diet really is, is the weight. Okay. The weight is the most visible, the most obvious, that happens pretty quickly if someone's abusing sugar or lots of it, right? Um, and that causes its own whole uh, constellation of problems, and mostly called metabolic syndrome, which has a whole list of, of different stuff with the obesity and the, the diabetes and the high blood pressure and the heart disease. And uh, But I, a lot of times, focus on the, the mind stuff, which is so fascinating to me. They're starting to call Alzheimer's diabetes 3, uh, where people with higher with, who have diabetes two, uh, diabetes two have a high much like insanely higher uh, chance of acquiring Alzheimer's later in life. I actually believe my mother died of sugar addiction, not Alzheimer's. I watched the whole process from you know her earliest days to the ending days when she had no mind to filter. To, to rationally decide and all she wanted to eat was sugar. And so I see this happening a lot in nursing homes and what have you. So mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the answer to your question is there's so many, I, I have some on the site. There's, you know, there's books that have say over 140 maladies and thyroids and that, that are caused by sugar. And as I said earlier, I think the cultural mindset is that, the things that it causes, we thought over 300 years really just caused was aging, was normal aging. And it's so far from the truth when you start to do the research. Say, so Mike, mm-hmm. I have a question. Sure. So a lot of people around here in Southern California, as a substitute, use stevia. Sure. So could you talk a little bit about stevia um, and anything else along that kind of line and if if it truly does have a benefit and um, it's not a problem i mean i i have my views on it but i'd like to hear what you have to say yeah no i'm einstein said genius is only pattern recognition right and in working with thousands of people online hundreds of people in person and i don't know if it's on my bio or whatever but i'm the chairman of the food addiction institute which is a board of nonprofit board is filled with MDs and PhDs and treatment centers owners who have seen this phenomena of people getting off sugar forever, right? For, you know, 20, 20 years. And what happens is the mind does not know the difference between the sweet of stevia and the sweet of fructose. In other words, it will set up cravings and stop your progress in its tracks. I call it adulting, guys. I'm like, we're talking, I feel like we're talking life and death here. I feel like this is your health. And as an adult, if you can't go nine, if I told you not to eat steak for 90 days, like, yeah, I like, I like steak. Well, and then you do it. And then broccoli, sure, same thing. But when I tell people they can't have a sweet or they can't have sugar for 90 days, 
they like start to act like that nine-year-old we talked about. You know, it's like it's kind of crazy to me. And the proof that we have now that the body doesn't know the difference between stevia and erythritol or whatever the hell, all of these false or fake drugs, which there's no science on this. No one's willing to do it. No one can do it. So who knows what that stuff does to you? But the bottom line in habit performing and habit unwinding is that you it stalls your your growth. It stalls your ability to get off sugar uh, because you are still addicted to that uh, that that reaching for sweet, right? This is which is a habit you have to break, and uh, so that's just my opinion. But and and based on a lot of research with a lot of people and research into the products themselves. <laughs> Another question along the similar lines. I've heard this set, uh, said, and I really believe it by observation of people I know. That is, if you have diabetes, right around the corner is gout and heart disease. Yeah. So, how, can you talk a little bit about how those might relate? Well, you know, I mean, I can only, like I said, rely on the American Heart Association, which is finally coming around with the child uh, awareness thing. But, I mean, the research is. I don't want to say sketchy, but it's it's the, the the direct causation stuff is still in the works, right? A lot of it is an, uh, not anecdotal, but anyway, people with uh, use a lot of sugar end up with these things, right? That's the you know the anecdotal evidence of it, and and they're diving into it day in and day out, and studies come in out every single day on different stuff, so you have to look it all up. But absolutely, when I talk about the the symptoms of metabolic illness, the metabolic syndrome stuff, uh, and the kind of strange ones like thyroid and gout, like you're talking about, these ones are uh, the science is there, but you know it, it's it, it's very difficult to study a human to put them away in a hospital for a year or years and and master their diet, right? So that exact causation is now. Now, I don't want to say anecdotal again, but it's like it's people that have or are obese have many, many more cancers and many more diseases and stuff, more metabolic syndrome. So and they're trying to put this all together into something where we can say, if you cut yourself with a razor, you bleed these kind of. And I think and I believe this diagnostic stuff will happen in the next 20 years. So especially in the brain. But anyway, I hope that answers the question a little vague, but. Again, drawing exact causation stuff is not yet done. So, Mike, when you when you're talking about um, sugar addiction and people giving up sugar, um, it sounds as if you advocate doing complete cold turkey, trying to completely eradicate sugar from your diet. Or is that what you think is best? Or should people that are concerned about their sugar intake try and you know kind of reduce their sugar intake gradually? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I can't remember if we did it on the podcast or just before, but yeah, everybody asks, do I have to do this for the rest of my life, right? And that is, what I ask folks is what I call the give themselves the gift of 90 days. And 90 days of what you talk about, cold turkey, complete abstinence from flour and sugar, and in most cases, fructose, meaning dried fruit and heavy amounts of fruit, to see what happens to their body and what happens to their mind, just to see just to give yourself that clean slate, just to, just to examine it. it. You know, the quote or the kind of thought process of 
everyone has their own answers and the search is inward and this kind of stuff. If folks are, if, so, if folks are willing to do that, if they're seekers enough and explorers enough in health and mental health and wellness, then they would give themselves this little test. Like if you were to go to an allergist, the allergist would scratch your back all the way down with pollen and everything else, you know, grass and everything to see what you're allergic to. So my ask, my ask, my question is, can you just do this with sugar? Can you just try this out? Just try it for 90 days. And I can tell you the results in the, my private, my private group on Facebook and my mentoring group and my clients. Anyone who has adheres to this and attempts this and goes the whole 90 days and truly did it, no cheating, no one that I've ever heard of has ever gone back to using sugar again. Their skin is cleared up. Their weight is falling to it. If they're not already all the way there, falling to a normal right size body for them. They wake up in the morning. They're no longer anxious or depressed. They're not um, sleepy all the time. It, it really changes your view of both mentally and physically what your body is and what it can do. So it's a tough one in this society and personally because it is a strong draw and such a strong habit. But that's what I ask folks to do. And, and I think that's what folks have to do because they have to, <clears throat> excuse me, have their own answers. I can't give them the answer to that question. They've got to do it themselves. A lot of people will what we call add stuff back. Like if they want to add a little blueberries back, or a little strawberries. And, and it's, sometimes it doesn't affect people. Some people can eat some oats. Some people can't. Some people can eat nuts or uh, what we call droops, which are basically fruit seeds. They're cashews and uh, walnuts and pecans and that kind of stuff. They're, but some for some folks, they can't eat that either because it leads them back to craving. So you've got to be willing to do this body, this experiment on yourself. And I think you have to be you have to be so careful about it, don't you? Because, you know, even these days, you know, I could go into the local supermarket and I could buy a packet of tomatoes. Some of those tomatoes have been sprayed with a sugary kind of solution to keep them, you know, preserved. So unless you've grown it, you've pulled it off a tree or you've shot it and cooked it, you know, you just you actually don't know, do you? Whether whether you're going to eat something, you're going to ingest something that's had some sugar added to it. Yeah, that part's really scary. Um, that you know, I mean, we didn't even get into like food additives and stuff. But um, so here, Mr. Curiosity, um, <laughs> no worries. Uh, probably about fifteen minutes ago, you you said, you know, if you want to talk about fruits, we can. So let's, shall we? <laughs> okay. So this, I get a lot more pushback than even the sugar. Um, I if I hadn't done it myself personally and had a lot of folks that you know, around the board over at the Food Addiction Institute and uh, people bugging me about it and Dr. Lustig stuff. The difference between uh, orange juice, fresh squeezed, organic, beautiful orange juice and a Coke with the fructose hit to the liver is absolutely zero. There's no difference at all. The fructose hits the liver and has to be processed through the liver in the same way. Then remember what we talked about with the brain chemicals and the fructose hitting the brain chemicals. So the orange juice is doing the same thing as the Coca-Cola. So as far as getting off of it, it's, you cannot, let's, let's, let's look at a navel orange gang. <laughs> a navel orange has zero seeds. It's a propagated sugar bomb hybridized for fructose for 300 years. If you look into nature and uh, a fruit, a banana 300 years ago was, had so many seeds in it, you couldn't eat it. 
And the same with an apple, those crab apples you see in nature. They have been hybridized for sweetness, and sweetness is fructose. And so the fructose is the issue, right? I've interviewed Dr. Lustig on our summits. I've interviewed Dr. Fecky in person, and I asked him both point blank. My personal question, is fructose a psychoactive drug? And both of them did not let me finish my sentence and said, yes, it is. And so their research is into this uh, fructose being the, uh, what he calls the offending molecule. This is the offending molecule. And so large amounts of fruit will lead you back to the craving of regular fruit, uh, regular sugar. And dried fruit is essentially just uh, fruit or just fructose. Agave syrup, agave, the stuff they use in tequila and the stuff they use as sweeteners in health food stores is 90% fructose or 80% fructose. So the answer is not, is it the fruit, but what about the fructose? It's the, it's the stuff that has been upped in our diet over 300 years. And 300 years in our evolutionary cycle is about a 30 seconds or less. You know, it's like, it's not very long. And the human body was not meant to ingest this product in such, they were meant to ingest it at the time of peak ripeness of stuff that was not, is not really edible much. And, and it's only one or two days of the year in any given area. And then it would disseminate the seeds. If you think about this anthropologically and evolutionarily. And so, I get a lot of crap on that. It, and there's a great video by Dr. Fetke called Is Fruit Good For You on YouTube, which will solve this in a much more scientific way and much more helpful to your listeners. Yeah. And then my only other comment would be, and it's everywhere in and everything. It's everywhere. So yeah. you can't, I mean, I don't go out to eat. I just don't. There's only one restaurant I go to because I know everything is organic and not screwed around with. Right. Well, I appreciate your curiosity. Over half of the podcasts I do are because the host wanted to know about their sugar issue. <laughs> so, <laughs> so don't feel, feel, feel in, a, in an elite group. So. <laughs> uh, for me personally, I find this whole topic fascinating and I'm loving this discussion today. Um, and what kind of we're talking about really is most people are trying to cure an addiction. And what I love about, you know, what we talked about earlier, and I want to loop back to the experiment we talked about with your children, because that's almost working at it from the point of prevention. So rather sure. than getting to the point of trying to cure something, because we all know that curing something is a lot, lot more challenging. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit more about the experiment with your children and how that was successful and how I guess parents out there can help their children sure. um, start to prevent th these addictions from happening. Yeah. Again, I kind of go back to the uh, quitting alcohol or cigarettes uh, right when you find out you're pregnant. And I think if uh, people would uh, younger childbearing age women would read up about the sugar stuff, then they would. And, and I, you know, I think that the ingestion of sugar and the cuteness of, oh, you can have anything, you know, banana split with a pickle on it or these kind of cravings, quote unquote. I think it's just fear and insecurity uh, uh, and, and people didn't know and realize. So they would have this product because they're a little nervous about having a baby, maybe their first or whatever, even their second or third. You know, they're thinking about like all the worries and raising them and 
relationships and all that kind of stuff. So they ingest a little more sugar. Their their habit ramps up a little bit, you know. And so I, I just think my, my boys, uh, I don't know how I talked my wife at the time into doing this. I really don't. She was a recovering person as well. And so, you know, she, she went along with it. And so my view of how it turned out for them is they don't seem to have any drawed alcohol or I mean any unusual drawed alcohol and first and sugar at all right and I you know they got perf- both got perfect scores on their college entrance exams kind of like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg kind of thing and that uh, I'm not that smart a guy I mean genuinely I'm more at much more closer to average than I am uh, that type of rocket science brilliance you know and I just believe that and this is very proven in the first thousand days, the first thousand days, the brain development stuff for a baby is so important. And if you're playing with those dopamine and serotonin receptors day in and day out with, I mean, most formulas have sugar in it and, and high fructose corn syrup. And if you're playing with their, your body, your brain's chemicals uh, in a child who's Tiny. I'm going to tell you guys a story, okay? Not even a story. It's a true fact. There, you can look this up. There's a product called Sweet Ease, okay? And Sweet Ease comes in a little cup, like an applesauce cup, and you pull it off. And on the top, it has a, a teething thing, a teething ring, a baby binky, what they call it. You know, they put in the baby's mouth, right? And the solution is mostly all sugar. And what they use Sweet Ease is, is they, they open it up, they put it in the baby's mouth, and then they circumcise the baby. That is the pain reliever for circumcision, okay? Sugar is the pain reliever for circumcision, okay? Imagine the pain, imagine the baby, right? And so this kind of just extends further. It just keeps going, right, from there on. And... You know, babies have it at their birthday and they're sticking this stuff in their mouth before they're one years old. And I just, you know, it's a hard societal switch. You know, back when cigarettes were, you know, doctors used to advertise it on television. It was a different world. And people quickly realized that there was a group of people who realized this is not good for you. But for most, I think in America, it was 60 percent of the adults smoked cigarettes, you know, and that's changed very rapidly. And I think that's where we're headed with this. This is a science meets uh, a cultural norm. Science meets a an ingrained cultural norm. It's it's something that's about to change, like drinking and driving, kind of the bathroom, smoking in public places. These things all change when the science said we need to do it the other way. And this is what's happening with sugar, I believe. And and we're early, and you guys are pioneers to even have a guy like me on discussing it this way. So thanks. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, we're talking about children and the experiment with your children. How did they find it when they went out to friends' houses and were offered sugar? Did, did they have any challenges with that? Or how did they respond to that? Because I guess that's going to be a question from our listeners. Sure. Is it's fine to, you know, you know, have those habits within the household, but when you're out and about with friends, is that then frowned upon? Do they get bullied? What other challenges can that lead to? We we fought everyone. We fought the Montessori school. We fought the grandparents. We fought the the, uh, the, uh, relatives and the parents of other children. We had to be very firm. And that's, I'll never forget the day when they were six years old. They're at a roller rink and it was a birthday party and the cake and ice cream came up. They're twins. And both of them craned their neck looking at me and like, 
like they didn't have to say anything. It's like, Daddy, can we this time? And uh, we just gave in because of that societal pressure that you're talking about. So it is a bit now about being a pioneer and being, you know, strong in your beliefs. And yes, I don't think that they were uh, over the years from six to adulthood uh, challenged by it much. They actually became, I don't want to say young little advocates, but they, you know, they said, well, we don't eat sugar at home much and uh, we can only have a little and, and it was really, kids are smart. And if you, at six years old, they were able to understand that uh, it's not that healthy for you. And so, and they're, you know, they're pretty healthy today. If you were to see them, they're pretty healthy. So and I guess that, sorry, John, I guess that comes back to identity, doesn't it? You know, we, we talk about when Claire and I coach, you know, behavior follows identity. So if they've got a strong identity that I don't eat sugar, then their behavior is that they don't eat sugar. So if they can say that with conviction when they're out with friends, I guess that confidence, their friends don't question it because they're very comfortable with their identity. Yeah. And I didn't find that what everybody asked, well, didn't they go crazy after they were free from your reign or whatever, even out when they were young? But no, I mean, I was visiting my son in college one time he was in Italy and, and uh, he like ate half of some dessert or something. And he just, I says, you're not gonna eat the rest of it. Nah. It's just like it, those kind of people you're like, you don't, under, I personally don't understand because I could not not eat the rest of the dessert. You know, so. And I guess that's a whole different topic in itself in terms of the microbiome and our gut bacteria and, and what, you know, is, is craving foods there. So I guess if, if the gut bacteria isn't craving the sugars, then he can quite happily put his spoon down and say, I've had enough because actually I don't want to eat that anymore. Right. Right. That's amazing. That's, and I think that's possible with everyone if they're, yeah. if they're not indoctrinated in, in a, at a young age to have it affecting their emotions or they're looking for their dopamine hit you know Mm. so what um what one piece of advice would you give to people if somebody is not ready to cut sugar out entirely where where would you suggest they start uh it's a great question but the obvious sugar drinks uh, sugary drinks you really probably shouldn't drink the sugar um and then as much processed sugar as you possibly can reduce to and if you find that it's, I don't know if I talked about the folks that the, the, the breakdown of numbers and it's uh, answers your question, I think is about a third of people biochemically can't do it. About a third of people are on the edge and they can take it or leave it, or they can maybe fall into it and then quit. And a third of people are like my kids or some people who just can't, they just, they can take it or leave it. Right. And so for folks that are bio, find themselves having a difficulty cutting down or cutting back, they may want to look into some work on recovery or addiction stuff. And then the people that are in the middle, they may be able to just cut back and use like people. A lot of people can drink alcohol regularly and, or, or socially and have no problems, right? And that's the crazy part is those numbers match the, the obesity numbers, both in America and in England, which is uh, about a third are obese, a third are overweight, and a third are normal size, right? So two-thirds, you know, broken down into thirds. And so it, it mirrors those numbers. So I don't know. You know, I, I, I'm not a fan of trying to cut back if you 
have an addiction issue because it just prolongs it. It never ends. It never ends. People go back and then they disappear for six months and they come back 50 pounds heavier and we start again. It happens over and over again. The people in the middle, that middle third, some of those folks can just wake up one morning and say, I'm 30 pounds overweight, enough sugar. And they stop and never use it or they quit. They cut way back and they understand their ingestion, right? And they're not addicts and that's cool. I'm, I'm happy for them. So it just depends who you are when you ask, when you ask that question. Okay. Cause a lot of people, you know, who are normal weight may still have an issue with sugar, but may not necessarily recognize it or 100%. have the same desire to want to cut it out because they you know they're okay with what they see in the mirror looking back at them they can't see 100%. what's inside of them um so they don't know how the sugar is affecting them internally and how do you reach those people 100 percent. and and i apologize for not mentioning that group that we call tofi thin on the outside fat on the inside a lot of fatty liver you know Fat centered around their organs and their stomach and everything, uh, maybe a little paunch or whatever, but basically pretty thin. And those folks, they have to judge it by their testing, their metabolic testing, their blood testing, any illnesses and all that kind of stuff, a foggy brain. And I have a lot of people like that who have never had a weight issue. I never really had a huge weight issue. There, and there's a lot of folks like that, for sure. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought it up because I missed it. And I was exactly the same, Mike. So I was pretty much addicted to sugar and how it manifested in me is I had chronic fatigue syndrome. So I mm. could look in the mirror and I was slim and I thought I was healthy because I was fit and healthy and did a lot of activity. And I thought I could outrun a bad diet. And yep. you absolutely, like you say, I was thin on the outside, but fat on the inside, so, and that manifested in chronic fatigue syndrome in me. So, so yeah. what, chronic fatigue is very common as a, as a symptom of sugar addiction. Yeah. So, what was it, the what was the behavioral shift that um, you experienced when you stopped doing sugar, Lisa? Because most of the people I know that are addicted to sugar aren't overweight, mm-hmm. but I can tell you yeah. my own process when I took it out for a period of time. The level of clarity and energy I had went through the mm-hmm. freaking roof. What was your, mm-hmm. That was my experience, but what was yours? Mine was very similar, John. I think the biggest thing for me is I'd gone to the doctors and they said, there's nothing we can do for you. We've done all the tests under the sun. We think you've got chronic fatigue syndrome. Here's some antidepressants. Mm-hmm. You're going to end up in a wheelchair and sent me home and it was actually through a nutritionist who then helped me several months later after I went searching I tried all lots of alternative therapies it was actually the nutritionist within six weeks I'd gone from probably maybe 30 percent energy where some days I couldn't get out of bed to probably 90 percent energy where I had a clearer brain um so I didn't have that brain fog I had a lot more energy I wasn't you know, walking into walls. I didn't need as much sleep. It was just a huge transformation for me. Mm. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I, I like to hear these stories. I know we're talking a lot about the other side of it, but I think it's important for people to to um, imagine themselves and what they might be able to experience in their life if they just got off sugar. Yeah, yeah. it's massive. It completely changed my life completely changed my life and well it actually gave me my life back because if I'd have continued down that route you know I'd have started then you know probably 
having those behaviors of someone who was going to end up in a wheelchair because that was going to be my mindset. So, you know, and it comes back to that whole mindset piece as well, doesn't it, Mike, in terms of the dopamine, the serotonin, and because I was reducing the sugar and I could work on my mindset as well. And I, I was determined to beat it. It's like chicken and egg, isn't it? Is you know, my body was craving the sugar. So you have to get the mindset first to stop having the sugar and then the you know, body stops craving it. So it is for me, it was a two, you know, pronged approach from the mind and the body. So no sugar, but the, the mindset to not eat the sugar in the first place. Excellent. Excellent. It's a big, hairy, complex puzzle for society and individuals because of the years long enculturation of the product and uh, now the science is catching up so um, hopefully the future generations will have a little bit better for us for them it sounds like the science is catching up pretty quickly mike as well so hopefully people are going to be much better educated certainly in the next generation of kids at schools yeah from an earlier age yeah no i'm excited about that i'm excited yeah, about that for sure absolutely the fastest growing little uh I just did it for grins. I put a Facebook group up, sugar-free kids, and uh, we already got two. That's only a couple months ago, not even a month ago. We got a couple hundred people in there. I didn't even advertise oh, that. Wow. Just so people are people are excited about it. You know, they're they're wanting to do that for sure. That is amazing. That's yeah. really good. Yeah. Really good. So I guess. I mean, in terms of a typical client, then it's someone who who wants to reduce their sugar intake or stop it completely. But what would you say to a client who's thinking about making this change? Who is a typical client for you? What do they need to do to be ready and willing, I guess, to start this journey? That's a great question. Um, People ask me, you know, what's my business model? I tell them I search for people that are ready. And uh, it doesn't matter what kind of education, community, or support we give someone if they're not truly ready that it has to be an internal process um you have to be ready or sick and tired of being sick and tired you have to be you have to be ready to do this because as we've ten- mentioned through the whole podcast that societally even individually it's a little bit of a, a hassle in the first 90 days you've got to get through some stuff some landmarks the withdrawals are real and the withdrawals are mostly mental it's like you feel like impending doom you feel like the world is ending you you know you're you've you've used the product to move your dopamine and serotonin for so long now you don't have it your down regulated uh dopamine receptors are and i don't this is not the right science but they're healing up they're they're trying to come back online and they're not going to be unless you go for a walk or a run or get a hug or you know do some other kind of self-care to generate some dopamine, you're not going to have any, you know, you're not going to be chasing it like you do all day with, so, with sugar and soda and everything. So the process of um, saying, okay, today, you know, I want to get to that 90 days is fraught with the first 30. You're starving all the time. You got to think of the delivery system. It's the stomach, right? And people don't believe me when I tell them that this growling stomach, this, this, ravenous need to eat absolutely disappears hunger does not feel that way real hunger does not feel that way it's a that's a sugar withdrawal symptom right or flour withdrawal symptoms and so you got to get through that and you know you think you got to eat all this food but you you know you can't eat any sugar but so it's it's kind of a nasty time and if you don't have a community that's doing this with you because 
99 out of 100 times, your family's not going to be on board with it. Your workmates aren't going to be on board with it. Nobody is going to be supporting you in your circle of influence right there at home. You've got to get out, reach out to other people who are doing this so that you don't feel crazy. Like I have this happen so many times. People say their relatives or someone or their spouse even says, all right, come on, you've lost 20 pounds. You haven't had sugar in 60 days. You can have a little at the kid's party or you. And then that's the last I see them for three or four months till they come back that 20 pounds back on, you know? And so you've got to have, you can't be isolated. There's just no way. One of the things that I think we excel in, and I think that the future is going to bring is 99% of people that do sugar detoxes out there are health coaches with this. They want to do something to bring in other clients or, keto educators or vegetarian educators or whatever. They're educators in the health space, right? And the part that they leave out is the background that I have in addiction where um, it, as an anthropo- anthropologist of the 12-step recovery movements of food addiction, which there are five of, have solved this problem in dusty church basements over 30 years. And the answer is abstinence from flour and sugar, Right. This is what heals you. This is what heals your brain, your soul, your body. And that stuff is locked in anonymity. And I feel it's like my responsibility to get this out to people that once you get off this stuff, there is some emotional swings that happen, some emotional ups and downs. And that can last for a year. You know, it can last for a long time because The last podcast I went on, they were very forward-thinking physical trainers. I was blown away. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the ACEs concept, the uh, adverse childhood experiences. A lot of times the, the, the use of sugar is no different than the use of alcohol or drugs, where people are trying to hide an emotional or physical trauma that happened to them. And it does not have to be Uh, sex abuse or physical abuse, it can be something very simple like bullying in high school or something where you never process these emotions out there. It's a great book out there called The Body Remembers, right? And you never process these emotions. And because of your pattern of using sugar to kind of kill your emotions, you've used that product. And when you take that product away, those emotions surface, those emotions come back. And they are not necessarily tied to the day you're in today about your boss or your kids or your husband. This is this could be old stuff that's processing. And you're angry and you're hungry. And if you don't realize this is happening to you, you will re-ingest to stop it because you have a life to live. You have people that, you know, meetings to go to, kids to raise. You don't have time to break down and cry. You don't have break down and time to break down and worry. You have to get through it. And the process that you use since the womb forward is sugar and to stop those emotions from flowing. And so you've got to figure other ways to help you process walks, hugs, exercise, uh, you know, whatever, a mani-pedi. It doesn't matter. A massage, different ways to help process through your emotions. So, again, I don't want to get on that rant, but uh, it's such an important part of the puzzle that most people leave out when they say, I just need a menu and the instructions, Mm -hmm. you know. It, it's really massive. And I was talking to a lady yesterday and we were talking about, about this and I was saying, you know, 
could could you consider you know reducing your sugar intake or cutting it out and she said oh gosh no she said because I get hangry which is you know as you've just mentioned angry and hungry and she said you know I had to do some fasting blood tests and said I was terrible because I was so hangry and I guess it's that fear isn't it of going without food so what would be your piece of advice to someone out there who is having that fear of being hungry, hungering and angry, what, what one piece of advice could you give someone with that fear? Um, be prepared because you can't hardly eat out and you can't be stuck somewhere without food. Be prepared either with your food, uh, with your food for sure. And, uh, you know, healthy fats uh, it helps cause, you know, cure the, the hangries, the whatever, helps you get through them. And, uh, and have a community, have someone you can call who doesn't think you're crazy. Who understands it completely? So you talk. You talk, Mike, about the tribe. How can people come and join your tribe? Is that by um, signing up on the sugaraddiction.com website? Yeah, I mean, we've got from you know do-it-yourself kind of thing that joins the community, um, the the Facebook group, which is three thousand thirty-two hundred people strong now. It's a, a group of people that is the most loving people on the planet. I think it's they all been there. They've all worked this out from all over the world. So it's uh, it goes you know. 24 hours a day. And it's, you know, they're from, like I said, I mean, you can log on anytime and just say, I'm losing my mind and I'm six days in and I can't, and you know, 20 or 30 people will help you answer. And, and, you know, it's not the same as picking up the phone, but a lot of people now pick up the phone or message one another, text one Mm -hmm. another. So it's a place where you meet those kind of people. But yeah, and then we have personal coaching if you want to do all that. But it's, it's just a small group of people who are moving in that direction with you because, you know, your husband says enough, I want some treats or your kids want their treats or whatever, you know, you are, you feel alone basically. And and when people, we're tribe animals, when we feel alone, we're going to go back with our tribe that we used to have. That's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Mike, is there anything you want just to leave listeners with one lasting point that they can take away from this today? Yeah, the only thing I always say like that is that um, be your own boss. Um, if you're a pioneer, you know, if you if this stuff resonates with you, if there's anything makes sense to you, do your own research. Get out there and figure it out, and use your own body as a testing vehicle with research and with people that have done it before. The, the there's a great quote, and I had some guru guy. There's there's no uh, there's nothing good about being well adjusted to a sick society, and if a hundred years from now, gang, they're going to say they used to give sugar to kids. Did you know that? I mean, it's truly <laughs> going to be Dr. Lustig thinks you should have an ID and be 18 years old to have sugar now. And I believe that personally. And so it's going to be a treat for adults like alcohol is now. And the science is going to overwhelm the cultural norms. So in order to do it today, you have to be a pioneer and think for yourself. Wow. Very powerful. Thank you so much for sharing and yeah, wonderful conversation. Well, I hope I didn't talk too much. I get on a soapbox. I'm sorry, but <laughs> so where, amazing content. Where do people get in touch with you? Best place, one location. Sugaraddiction.com. Say that it's again. Sugaraddiction.com. Uh-huh. It's uh you know, like I said earlier, we said earlier, it's like if you if you get you make your way to sugaraddiction.com, you probably don't have to think about it if you have an issue with sugar. <laughs> you're, you're ready. You're ready. And we want to talk. That's fantastic. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, John, for joining us as well. Um, we're your hosts, Claire Nicolau and Lisa Victoria. 
If you like what you've heard today, please tell others about this podcast. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We're going to put some links in the show notes. Um, Mike, as he said, his contact details are sugaraddiction.com. John can be found at johnbethan.com, and that's B-I-E-T-H-A-N. And as always, if you've got any feedback for us, we'd love to hear it at feedback at lifehacksforliving.com. Thank you very much. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you, Noah.